joining us on the Pollen and Allergies pod is Dr. Bron from the RSPCA. Welcome, Dr. Bron. Thanks, Sam. How are you doing? Good, good. Give us a little bit of background on yourself. Most people will have heard of the RSPCA, but perhaps it'd be great just to give a bit, everyone a bit of a, an updated view on what the RSPCA does these days. Absolutely. So everyone knows the RSPCA for looking after our shelter animals. We're, we're the advocate for these animals that might have been seized by the inspection or for animals whose, whose owners can't look after them any longer, or it may just be a strain, an abandoned animal found on the street. What a lot of people don't know is we also run two private veterinary clinics. And those clinics exist to sustain the work that we do for those shelter animals. So uh, we're, we're all run normal, normal general practice clinics. Um, people often come in here, they have eye problems, skin problems this time of year. And we will look after those clients as any other GP will. But the money being raised from looking after those pets actually goes towards our shelter animals, not for profit. Cool. Now, when you say GP, yeah. um, you're a vet. So when you, you talk about it, like it's a, a human medical practice, is that common within the the veterinary industry? Yeah, it's really, it is. We exist in, in a number of different entities. So, um, where, where humans might go to their general practitioner, veterinarians will have a regular vet is what a lot of people call them that they tend to go to. So that's the vet that they, they come to for their everyday needs. And, um, then what you might find is that you're referred out to a specialist for a certain procedure. So if you've uh, broken a leg and it's a complex fracture. That might be something that your general practitioner or your regular vet might not be able to fix. So whilst we do a lot more than, than what you would, you would think your GP or human GP would do, uh, there's certain limitations as to what we can do. And that can be related to the facilities that we have. Uh, it can be related to the hours that we work. So we also have yes. also emergency hospitals that run 24-7. But of course, it can be related to the skill set. Um, medicine is pretty complex. And as you'd be aware, with, when we're dealing with animals, we're dealing with a huge amount of species. And you don't always, you can't always apply the same knowledge to every single species that comes in. So do you think being a animal doctor is more complex than being a human doctor? I wouldn't necessarily say that. <laughs> I guess you've only I got can... the physical side. I know dogs do have mental health care problems as well. I know a few people have got we dogs do. on Ritalin and all sorts of crazy medication. Absolutely. And, and behavior medicine is running off charts. We have a lot of animals that are actually in the shelter because of behavior, not because of medical things. Right. Their owners can't look after the behavior. So we actually have a behavior specialist here who looks after that side of things. There you go. Fascinating. Now, we at Melbourne Pollen, we obviously know that humans have allergy problems because of pet dander, but I'll be honest, I hadn't thought about pets getting some sort of allergic reactions or having allergies, whether it's seasonal or non-seasonal. And your team reached out to us and said, hey, how would you like to talk about it? So we thought, what a, what a great idea. Let's talk about pets and allergies. So what are the most common types of allergies that you see in pets? Most common type are the ones that are related to the skin. So we often think of humans this time of year, you've got birds chirping, the sun's out, there's a little bit of rain happening, there's pollen being spread everywhere and people start sneezing. In pets, it's less the sneezing side of things and it's more of a contact-based allergy. So you might find that our little fluffy is licking his paws a lot or is my hair, she's just pulling out hair incessantly. And these can all be sides of skin allergies, and they can be pretty subtle because you can't really see the red lesions because there's fur on top of our pets. What might look just a minor inconvenience to us, though, it can be quite excruciating for our pets. And there's some allergies that can get so bad that return is an iceberg effect. So you clip a little bit of fur and you think it's just a small localized area. But what it actually is three times as big in the area that's been affected. And they can be extremely painful, some of those. Some of those animals will need sedation for us just to clip and, and apply typical medication to them. 
And is it the same mechanism of action where the body, the, the pet's body is coming into contact with some type of allergen and it's setting off an immune response and then that's causing the inflammation in the local area, you know? Yeah, issues. it is. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of IgE and IgGs and all that sort of stuff with, a lot of people don't know what that means, but they're our main allergens. And, and what we tend to find is it's usually contact-based for pets. You might find that, that's, that's one of the reasons why feet are commonly affected is because you can be walking in grasses that are now producing seeds that is, your pet is actually allergic to. Sometimes you'll see pets with the beautifully white, pristine pets and always look like they've been through a bath daily and they've got brown or golden colored little paws. And that's actually not normal that's because they've been licking them incessantly. So whether you've seen that or not, that's, that pet's probably got an allergen. There's certain pets that do have predisposition to allergies. Certainly golden retrievers are one of them. So that are sharp haze, those sort of breeds, they tend to get allergies for one reason or another over other dogs. So any dog or cat can get an allergy, but it, there just seem to be a genetic basis for it. And what about birds and other species, wild, other sort of natural, so to take kangaroos and koalas and these types of things. Do, yeah. we, do we know less about their al allergy prone nature? We do know less about them. I actually did a study on koalas and the IgG response of the koala for um, Taronga Zoo. It was many moons ago when I was a vet student, young Hamish, who used to have this rhinitis, which uh, is especially the inflammation of, of the nose for people who don't know that. Um, and he would consistently be dripping from his nose, but we'd have pools of, um, of nasal discharge. Um, that he'd be sitting in and that would cause further irritation. So they can get it. It's less common or less common that we know about it. And I think probably largely that's due to the fact that those animals are in areas they're environmentally climatized to. It's their natural habitat. They've always been in that area. They're hanging out in the eucalyptus, which is what they've evolved to. So less likely to. Whereas you find you know, dogs and cats, they're not natives to Australia. We also bring in a whole lot of non-native vegetation where those animals might be hanging out. You wouldn't want to be a bee with a pollen allergy. That would be devastating. Yeah. That would that'd be, no, that'd be no good at all, bro. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to treat it either. And the tiny little instruments to fix yeah. And yeah. I can't imagine how you'd medicate a bee. But anyway, we digress. Tell me, when when a pet parent, what do you call a pet parent, pet owner, pet I parent? I like to call them an owner. owner. Some, right. some people love the, 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 the fur parents, the fur okay. babies. So when a fair fur parent brings in a fur baby and you diagnose them with an allergy, are people generally shocked and had no idea that their dog could get allergies or do pet owners know this? There's a mix of the cohort. Some people are well aware of them. They might've had a pet who's had it before or they get skin allergies themselves, but people will usually do associate allergies with hay fever. Uh, that's what they, that's what they associate it with because they're humans and that's how allergies usually express themselves. So some can be quite surprised. Right. And our do you see a lot of seasonality with pet allergies like humans? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This time of year, it's rife for it. And unfortunately down in Melbourne, we've got that unpredictable weather where it's winter one day and it's summer the next and the whole lot of growth in, I don't know if anyone has been out in the garden would know that there's flowers flowering at weird times of the year at the moment. And that, that brings to it pollen, it brings to it uh, uh, seeds, excessive growth of those, of, of those plants. And um, what we get is more contact with our animals who are out and about as well, because when the weather's nice, they're outside more. And do we know if dogs and cats learn that they're allergic to certain things? Will they learn not to roll in the grass or are they just not quite that switched on? I don't think they're quite that switched on. I don't know if anyone's done a study to prove it, but I think uh, a roll in the grass is always going to win and the, the allergy tends to creep on a little bit later than that instant gratification. And so do you do allergy tests on pets? We do. And this is something that people are really surprised to find out. So we do allergy testing. 
And it's been the precursor for one of the most effective ways of treating these seasonal allergies, which is vaccination. So we can, just like you do with humans who might have a food allergy or a skin allergy or a pollen allergy, we can induce that response, work out exactly what they're allergic to, and then develop an individual vaccine for them. It takes six to 12 months to take effect, but 75% of patients, there's a massive reduction in clinical signs. It's so impressive as to what can be done then. And is that some sort of immunotherapy? Yeah, that's basically a vaccination. And how are you personalizing it for that pet? Just there are just, there's immunotherapy treatments for a particular type of grass pollen. Is that how it works? Yes. It's all individually based. It gets sent off to America at the moment. So dermatologists usually run it. It's something your, your general practitioner or your regular vet would usually recommend you to go see a dermatologist. They do that sort of testing. A pet dermatologist. A pet dermatologist. <laughs> yes. And this is where I say all the, all these specializations we have for humans, we rehearse to animals. Right. <laughs> So these allergies can, they can be, the vaccinations can be a little bit expensive to start off with. You might be looking at, at $500 for the vial, which would last six months though. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at it long-term, often what we're traditionally treating some of these allergies with, systemic medications like cortisone, things like Cytopoint, these are great medications which can really improve the life and the quality of life of these pets, but they do have adverse effects. Um, so giving them time and time again can actually cause other systemic issues for our animals especially when you have to um, add antibiotics into the mix when you get a secondary infection. We all know there's, there's lots and lots of talk about antimicrobial resistance. We want to minimize that. We're really, in the animal industry, we really are looking to minimize our use of antibiotics and not having an appropriate use. So we want to use these things sparingly and preventing infection is a way of doing it. And would these type of treatments be covered under pet insurance? Depends on your actual insurance. Some would, some won't. So some insurance, and it depends on the actual policy as well. So some policies will cover you for accidental issues only. Some of them will be accidental issues and will include things like allergies if they're not already... Pre-diagnosed. Yeah, pre-diagnosed. Pre-diagnosed, right. absolutely. There really is a lot of parallels with humans, isn't there? It, there really is. <laughs> now, you mentioned some of the telltale signs, such as licking the paws or scratching. What are some other telltale signs that folks should be on the lookout for? Cats tend to pull out their hair a lot, so they get very stressed and start pulling and biting. It's, it's excessive grooming is what they see for them. You can see the staining of the feet is, is the big one, which, which indicates that there has been licking. But in some animals like you, your longer-haired golden retrievers, what you might find is it's just an area that they're quite sensitive to. It might be around their ears or it might be on their chest. And that's, that sort of um, response is usually related to what we call uh, superficial pyoderma, which is basically a hot spot. Uh, so it's an area that gets moist. Um, for some reason or another, certain breeds are predisposed to it. it. Happens this time of year, bacteria gets trapped in that area, um, and they get a really nasty and really painful infection. So, just it could be as simple as your pet not wanting you to touch them in a certain spot in ears and around the lips can be a very common area. And how do you tell when your dog is in pain, other than when you go to pat it and growls at you? Yeah, that's obviously <laughs> the one you want to be avoiding. <laughs> So they can express pain in a number of different ways. That can be as simple as not wanting to interact with people. Uh, it can be related to not wanting to eat. It can be related to not wanting to move a lot. So it does depend on what the source of pain is um, and where the pain is vocalised. If it is vocalised, it may be more generalised. Do they have antihistamines for pets? Yep. Antihistamines are great. And they can really spare the amount of other drugs that you do use for allergies. When we start bringing out the big guns like, like our cider points, which can have an Aquapel, which are great medications, but can have adverse effects when used in large doses. Something like an antihistamine or a corticosteroid can really help with lowering amounts of their, their considered sparing drugs. And they can just take the edge off if it's just a light dose. 
And are there special antihistamines for pets? Or do they, they use human antihistamines? We use human ones. It's just a different dose. Right. And so if you suspected that your dog or cat may be suffering from some form of allergy, could you put a couple of drops of antihistamine in their food and just see how it goes? You'd probably want to check with your vet. Um, some of the antihistamines will have some ingredients that don't mix well with dogs. There's a number of different types of generation of antihistamine too, some of which can be quite sedative. And if your pet's on other medication, you don't, you may not want to mix that because we can get things like serotonin responses where they can, they can really start cycling up because they, they get an inappropriate amount of serotonin based on the receptors that the antihistamine and other medications are, are attached to. Um, so your best bet is to always start off with having a bit of a, a chat with your vet about a, how to avoid the allergen, and it may be sometimes we dress up our dogs in people people love putting pretty fancy clothes on on dogs. I see some pugs walking around with some pretty pretty special gear, but sometimes that some of those that, that gear can be protective for them. So stopping pollens and stopping grasses from actually touching their skin. Sometimes we can do things. It's really hard to bathe the cat. I don't recommend it. We do have to do it here sometimes for uh, for ringworm and things like that. Uh, but just wiping down the fur after they've been exposed to the outside elements to actually remove uh, some of that contact because contact is a big part of pet allergies. And in terms of breeds, you mentioned golden retrievers. What about cats? Do certain cat breeds have a more predisposed to allergies? We don't tend to have as much information about that. Um, it is certainly a lot of domestic shorthead, domestic longheads, non-specific breeds. I think it's largely because we don't see as many purebreds in the, in the cat world as opposed to in the dog world, people tend to be um, more choosy about their, their dog breeds as opposed to a cat's a cat for many people. Not, not necessarily everyone, but um, we don't have as much information. Now, we're recording this on Halloween. Uh, this is somewhat unrelated, but is it true you can't feed dogs chocolate? It is absolutely true you can't feed dogs chocolate. Chocolate contains two active constituents that can actually cause a lot of damage to them. So one is caffeine. Uh, so caffeine will increase the heart rate and can do that to a level where you can get uh, quite That's a high right. heart rate that can be quite detrimental. And then there's theobromine, um, which is another constituent of chocolate. And, um, what both of them will do is they can start off by causing a bit of vomiting and diarrhea, uh, but they can they can go to the point where your dog uh, starts to tremor and shake. Um, they can cause other heart issues apart from making the heart go fast. So it can be lethal. They do have to ingest quite a large amount if it's uh, dairy, if it's just milk chocolate. By far the worst types of chocolates are your baking chocolates, are your dark chocolates, because they've got higher concentrations of that caffeine and theobromine. Mm. It's quite that. ironic that a dog can eat just about anything other than chocolate. I know, right? I've seen them eat raw chickens, their oh, own feces. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so the human feces, they love it. That's disgusting. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually a common way of, of dogs becoming intoxicated with illicit substances because they're transmitted to the human feces and uh, dogs starts running around where um, someone has have a little bit too much milk or a little bit too much something else. And they go, human faces, yeah. And, and we come in and see them with the clinical signs of intoxication. Well, I guess you've got to be being partying pretty hard to leave your faces somewhere for your dog to be able to consume it. But that's a whole nother topic. We'll probably it is not a whole... <laughs> <laughs> I've had some weird and wonderful tales of how this is. <laughs> I'm sure. Just be like, again, like being a normal GP, you see all sorts of weird and wonderful presentations. You do. From person and someone whose own backyard sewer exploded oh, and wow. we said hey your dog's showing these signs there's a chair it's moved with the kids and I'm and it turned out the sewage pipe had exploded and it was actually one of the crumbs anyway yeah. what about food allergies in pets 
Vinyl allergies are notoriously difficult to define. What um, what will usually happen is you'll be asked to pop your or your dog, and it's usually a dog, but often cat, cats can as well, onto a elimination diet. So very similar to humans, you cut out anything that we know might be a trigger point, and we usually put them on a novel protein which can be anything from a prescribed diet. So Royal Cannon has a number of ones. They do want some skin as well, but gastrointestinal specific ones where they've hydrolyzed the protein. So your body sees that as a new protein, so it hasn't developed an allergic response to it. And you have to go on those for about six weeks. And where people find it quite difficult is that the six weeks has to be just that diet. And it's really tempting to just, here's a little liver treat or have a little scrap of food. And that can set you right back to the starting point again. Once you've done that six weeks, if there's been a clinical improvement, you go, okay, it looks like there's a food allergy. And then you start adding in proteins that the dog may have been exposed to or the cat may have been exposed to. And they can express themselves both as gastrointestinal signs, but also as itching. And so what would, what are dogs, in a food perspective, what are dogs and cats most uh, allergic to? like to think of it as what they in the wild eat this type of food. Cats can often have beef allergies. So you see a lot of cat food with, with beef in it, but it's not a natural source of protein for them. So they have developed allergies to it. There's a whole lot of, a lot but of, there's not a lot of cat food there. that's just birds. No, exactly. There's <laughs> <laughs> chicken and fish. So some of the stuff we trial and what is like goat and rabbit and things, kangaroo, uh, which is, how, is quite. How many cats are eating fish in the wild? It's, not a lot, really. No. Um, larger cats, yes. So there's probably some evolutionary advantage, but not a lot. Um, so you can see fish allergies as well. It's it's quite a tricky one if your animal does develop allergies. And not everyone will. We can retry things that we've never been we were invented to eat, and we're fine with them. But some animals do, and then it becomes a bit of a tricky process to identify what the cause is and then work out what you can actually feed them. So are all domestic cats, do they all come from the big cat family? Oh, I'd have to go way back to biology to tell you about the fit biologic tree of this. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's been a while. All right. No worries. All right. And, and so do cats and dogs, do they have anaphylaxis like humans? They do have anaphylaxis like humans. It's less related to um, ingestion of things. It's usually related to um, more of an emotion. So uh, what we do, we do say this time of year because there's lots of bees around. Uh, most common type of anaphylaxis is a localized IG reaction. Um, so what we'll see is some swelling. We might see what we call urticaria, which is little wheels that are all over the body. Instead of some itching and they can look ridiculously cute. You get like little cocker spaniel puppy with great big lips because they're all swollen up and they can't push. It's quite uncomfortable for them. And very commonly we'll find a barb from an insect. So it might be a bee or a wasp that's stung them. And it can also be ants. So it can be difficult to pinpoint what has actually been the cause. Just like with humans, they've usually been bitten before and not had a reaction. And then it's the subsequent bite that will actually induce this inappropriate immune response, which goes, this is foreign, I must attack. And therefore you get all this. Swelling. And yes, so can it, they, can they die from anaphylactic shock? Yeah, in severe cases, they can. Most of them will stick to that localized or systemic reaction that's just around the skin sort of area. But if they start showing signs of vomiting or diarrhea, you know that it starts to hit the gut. And when it starts to hit the gut, that's usually the case that there, there has been something a bit more serious and those patients should be hospitalized to make sure they don't go hypertensive and die. Sometimes they can need things like adrenaline CRIs, so continuous infusion of adrenaline whilst we're waiting for it to wear off. Most cases though, can be treated simply at a vet clinic as an outpatient with some antihistamines and sometimes corticosteroids and some vets will prescribe them for known offenders. And it's often the puppies to be going around, this looks good, my mouth is my hands, I'm going to pick it up. Oh, not so great. All right. So let's flip the tables. We've talked a lot about pets. What about pets and their impact on humans? Do you see a lot of 
pets coming into the RSPCA because humans can't look after them because they found out they're allergic to a particular animal? It's something that does occur, but it's certainly not the main reason why people are surrendering animals. I think when it comes to when it comes to things like that, I think a lot of people become aware of how they can counteract some of those allergies, which might be if they've got known allergies, then they're not saliva. So I'm not going to let an animal lick me or I'm allergic to fur. So certain breeds I'm more likely to be able to associate with. And there are also vaccines for humans. So you can get true therapy to to try and reduce your your actual response to animals. I did I did once with a, a vet student before I was actually a vet student who was in her third or fourth year of practice when she discovered she was allergic to cats, yeah. which is a little bit of an occupational investment. So she started going through through vaccine therapy so that she could actually deal with those animals. It's like a doctor becoming allergic to latex. I know, right? Happens. Not, it's not uncommon. Yeah, and since you get the, the gloves that are non-latex, we have to and we have to carry them as well. Right. You get those latex allergies. Well, it's been a fairly wide-ranging discussion. What haven't we broached that that pet owners may be thinking? God, for God's sake, ask Doctor Brown this question. Oh goodness, I think. Probably the biggest one is what to do if you think your pets come in contact with something or your pets incessantly itching. And the first thing to do is probably the same instinct that you'd have for yourself. If there's an itch, let's clean it, let's wash it, let's try and get some of that pollen or whatever might be touching us off us. And if it becomes a, a big reaction, it becomes an incessant thing, have a chat to your local vet because they will probably be able to give you some pretty good tips as to how to reduce it from happening again. And we all want our pets to be happy. It can be quite distressing, although it may look like a minor inconvenience for us, but if an itch is enough that it stops an animal from moving midway, so if you've got a cat that's praying and it just turns around suddenly, or if you've got a dog that's doing something and then stops to bite its toes, that's affecting its daily life. And that's affecting it enough to really interrupt the quality of life. So it's always worthwhile investigating what can I do to prevent this? And often it's simple and inexpensive. Sometimes it's a bit more, but sometimes you can completely stop the allergen. Probably the first thing though, for anyone who has an itchy allergy, the first thing that any vet is going to ask you to do is to treat it for fleas and other parasites. Because I've had so many people come in, they swear there's not a flea to be seen. There will never be a flea on this animal. And you can get flea allergies, which means only one flea bite, one little bite could be enough to set your animal off. But often people don't see the fleas. They get a little bit freaked out, a little bit grossed out by the fact there might be fleas or there might be bites on their own pitch. But it's a very simple fix and it's something that you can you can deal with quite easily. One thing we often find is people go away for winter when it's really cold, they'll come back, they'll turn the heaters on and they'll have fleas bouncing around their carpets because the heat's changed and always eggs are hatched. It's kind of gross. Disgusting. But where do these dogs, where do the dogs and cats pick up the fleas from? Just, uh, they're just in the grass. And... When you get up north, you have to worry about ticks and things like that, obviously. Oh. But it's not really a, a niche-based thing, but it's just around. And if you're out in the country, what you'll often find is that there's, there might be foxes with mange or wombats with mange, and you can pick up mange from those animals. Right. And that can be a little bit more tricky to treat. It's very treatable. Your vet will usually do something called a skin scrape, where they take a small amount of, a little bit of a scalpel blade, they take a small amount of skin, just enough to graze it so there's a light bleed, and actually have a look at that under the microscope, and they can often see the parasites. And so it can all be done in-house, it doesn't have to be a big crazy thing. Well, sometimes they'll pop a little bit of sticky tape on the skin and do what's called a tape prep, have a little look and see if there's bacteria there or what sort of response is there. So there's a lot that can be done at your local, at your regular vet, your GP's office. And is there a lot of innovation in the world of pet health? Pet health is... Massive market. 
and you can see it just from people like the brands like Mars. Mars is a massive pet industry brand. They've brought up so much of different types of pet food and, and rats. It's a massive area of growth because pets are becoming, if not already well established, a vital part of many families. They are no longer the dog that sleeps outside. They're the dog that sleeps on your bed. The dog that sleeps on your bed is itchy. You're going to have a rough night of it and you might get itchy yourself. Do they jump between humans and animals and humans? They can, absolutely. So we've got, you have your lice side of things and you have your mite side of things. Some of them are very host specific and they'll just might take one bite of human and go, that's disgusting. I'm not going anywhere near that human. But some will actually go across to different hosts. There you go. Anything else we should cover off, Dr. Bron, before we let you get back to your patients? Oh, I think that's probably it. <laughs> do you still see patients? I do, yeah. Yeah, I've gone straight away. All right. I guess before we go, how can people help the RSPCA? As I, I know that you can donate, do other things, bits and pieces, but what are the things that the RSPCA most values from folks in terms of assistance? Probably one of the biggest things you can do, especially when we're in such a, such a horrible financial climate, you know you have to look after your pet. And you know your pet might need to see a vet. So if you need to see a vet, consider coming to one of our clinics because by helping your pet, we're actually helping our children. It's not more expensive than anywhere else. We have an amazing array of vets. We've got 34 vets on staff with an average of 15 years experience, which is something you really don't get in a lot of places. Okay. And we've got vets who have done extra expertise in, in certain areas. We've got people who trained in orthopedics and dentistry. All of our vets have done advanced dentistry. They see so much that most general practitioners wouldn't. There's generally a vet here who can help you just by looking after your own pet, by not spending anything extra, you actually help our children. So the profits for good. Profits for good. Yeah. Do good for yourself and do good for the RSPCA at the same time. Yeah. So I've got, a, I've got a, uh, a neighbor who's a horse dentist. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big thing. It's when their teeth get overgrown, really burry. Yeah. He'd be a vet though, wouldn't he? Uh, not all of them, not all of them no. vets. The ones who are not vets can't provide sedations. They can't do sedation. They can't use motorized tools. Often we do use motorized tools for actually trimming horse teeth. You can see the reasons why you might need to be a vet to do that. But yes, the pharmaceutical use is what we meant, the, the non-veterinary horse dentists. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for coming on. And what we might do is I'll put up a little Q&A. If people have got questions for Dr. Bron, perhaps we can take all the questions that come in and we can organize another chat and uh, we could go through some listening questions. That's not a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Sam. Thanks, Dr. Bron. Have a great one.